Hi, good morning, Miss Yo. Today's reading is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We're making our way to Easter on April the 4th, and as we've done so, or as we're doing so, we're looking at how Jesus interprets the character of God, or the image of God to us. In first um, Colossians and Hebrews, you see how Um, Jesus is the revelation of God to us in human form. And I was reading or I was looking at this British poet this week. I love poetry. So beautiful. I have a couple of friends that are like, I don't know how you can love poetry. I do just love it. And there's this poet called David White. He's an Englishman. And I love the way that he like actually communicates his poetry. Sometimes he'll just like repeat the lines three times. It's like, I love you so much. You want people to absorb that. You know, he spent hours and hours crafting this one line. So then he stands up on stage and he just like repeats it three times. He was telling this story about his niece, Marlene McCormick. And she did the, this pilgrimage. It's called the Camino. Actually, Christy and her husband did it. It's in Spain. It's a 500-mile walk. And a lot of people do that walk to like sort out the things that they believe or the experiences that they've had. Um, Some people do it to connect with God or connect with others. And he was talking to his niece because she'd just done this 500-mile walk across Spain. And um, at the end, she carried on a little bit past the city um, to the water's edge, kind of the end of the part of the country, looking out over the water. And he asked her what she did, and she said... Um, that she took her boots off at the water's edge. And um, because she's like, I didn't need them anymore. I didn't need those boots anymore. And she said that she put on her running shoes instead. She left her boots and she put on her running shoes. And I think sometimes with our God images, these images that we've built up in our minds or experiences that we've had, things that we've taught, like it comes to a point in our lives where we realize like we don't necessarily need those images anymore. They don't hold true. 
And so maybe it's like time to kind of put those down like a pair of old boots at the water's edge. Because they're not serving us anymore. In terms of letting us understand the truth of who God is, or the truth of who we are, or each other. And so as I pray this morning, before we get into the book of 1 John, I'm just going to hold silence for a second. And maybe just ask God to help you to identify like some of those maybe old boots or old images that you might need to leave here today that don't serve you in understanding who God is or who you are or what the world is about. So let's just have a moment of quiet and then I'll pray and then we'll look together at 1 John chapter 4. Jesus, we come here this morning with images about who you are as God and who Father God is and Spirit is. and We've come to understand things about you through our experiences, through what we've been taught. Would you help us to identify maybe images that don't reflect the truth of who you are? Help us to have willing spirits to leave those here today there's resistances or doubt or uncertainty, would you bring your presence into those places for us? Calm us. Settle us into attuning to you this morning, we pray. And especially attuning to your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First John 4, beginning at verse 7, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And then there's a very specific thing that John tells us about God, that God is love. And then he says, God shows his love among us this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He has sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. We have life through Christ who God sent into the world. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the translation that Jessica read, it was propitiation. So there's this atoning sacrifice for our sins, and this is love. And that's the story of Easter, right? It's kind of summarized in these words here that summarizing kind of the death of Jesus and the meaning of the death of Jesus, that um, there's a demonstration of God's love so that we might have life through Jesus's atoning sacrifice on the cross, right? It's kind of Christianity 101. It's it's what maybe you would say if you were in a pinch and it was like, what's Jesus What's Jesus is, and it's true, it says it right there. And when I don't know if any of you cook soup, I do sometimes, not too often, but there was one time I made a potato soup and I add way too much salt, which is hard to do with potatoes because potatoes absorb salt. But when you put a lot of a certain type of thing in a soup, like salt, like that's the only thing you can taste, right? It's emphasized. 
and it distorts all the other flavors. And over the last 200 years or 2,000 years, humans have taken portions of the Bible and put an emphasis on certain parts, especially when it comes to Jesus' death. And unfortunately, the meaning of Jesus' death has landed many of us with some distortions, like a certain taste in our mouth. Because it's something that's articulated over and over, and we hear it and absorb it, and sometimes then it kind of translates into like a certain type of flavor. And I think one of the distortions is that we focus on being undeserving. That this moment of Jesus on the cross is just this indication and the articulation that comes around grace is that we as humans are undeserving. You just don't deserve this thing that Jesus is doing, but he does it anyway. And so the story serves to remind us of our unworthiness. That's kind of one flavor that is pretty consistent in our mouths when it comes to talking about Jesus and the death of Jesus. Or maybe something like, like, well, I was sinful and Jesus took punishment, so I'm free to go to heaven when I die. Like maybe that's more of the tasteless flavor of the soup, you know? But it's an emphasis. I was very sinful. Jesus took the punishment, and so I can go to heaven when I die. Or maybe, like, if we get into it a little more, it gets a little more intense, and it could be something like, Jesus died because God is angry. Or, humans are a real problem. So Jesus came to deal with his anger or his problem so they didn't have to punish us or, like, kill us. That's like a story that has been and has been told and kind of what we've absorbed. N.T. Wright would say that while John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he sent our son, somehow, because of these stories over the last 2,000 years, the distortion, we have heard it as God so hated the world that he killed his son so that he wouldn't kill me. And maybe that's like the most extreme, right? Maybe you're like, yeah. But some of the other ones maybe resonate a little bit. And that's actually terrifying. And I want you to know that it is natural to feel afraid of a God like that. Because that punishment is pretty intense. And it may not be so blatant in your mind, but maybe these subtleties, the story and the subtleties of these, this story have been absorbed into you. And with that emphasis swirling around, we start to like absorb that the life that we have with God is about doing the right thing and believing the right thing and judging others and self on doing the right thing because there's enormous pressure on doing the right thing. Because on the other side of doing the right thing is punishment and anger and judgment or abandonment from God. And so, of course, there's an enormous pressure to do the right thing if, that, if these are the kinds of outcomes of what happens if 
don't do the right thing. That God is just so angry with wrong things. And so if we find ourselves being legalistic or anxious or wanting to give up, that makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. Because our God images have a correlation to how we live, which is what we've been saying this whole series. And so what you believe about God and why you believe it and where it came from really, really matters. Because it has a correlation to how you live, what you think, how you might act towards others or how you act towards yourself. And God consistently reveals God's self, Father, Son, and Spirit, as loving. That's why we focused a lot this season on Lent. That God's love is the focus, because in the text, we consistently read about death, Jesus' death on the cross, and it is paired with love. It's what we just read this morning, verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. And I think we get so far away from love because of what we've heard or understood about that last part of the verse, sacrifice for sins. So what is an atoning sacrifice for sin all about? Well, let's break it down. First of all, let's talk about sin. And sin in the biblical narrative is not simply about breaking rules. I think that's, again, this reductionistic notion of where we get sin from. Breaking rules, and it's those actions that kind of gets us out of God's good books and into like the pages that are a little bit angry or deserved of punishment. But the word sin means, literally means, missing a target. So if sin means missing a target, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what is the target? If sin is missing the target, then let's talk about, like, what is the target? And like I've said, often our notion of the target is to not mess up so that we avoid anger or punishment or to not mess up so that we don't make God sad or disappointed with us for doing the wrong thing or we try to make sure others do the right thing. Like, that's what, it, that's what our notion often is of what the target is. But the biblical story reveals to us that genuine humanness is the target. Genuine humanness is the target. Because genuine humanness tells a true story about who God is and who you are, who others are, and who the rest of creation is. That's why the target is genuine humanness, because genuine humanness tells the story of God, tells the story of you, tells the story of the world. 
And in verse 12, it says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and love is made complete in us. So love is the way that we see and know God. That's the way that we see and know God. And so the story of human language is love. The true story of human language is love. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, our job is to image God into the world. And so genuine humanness images God and it shows up and it turns up with what? Love. And sin is what corrupts that. Sin like draws us and coerces us away from love or God and asks us to collude with chaos. And chaos produces fear and shame and judgment and pride and entitlement. That's the fruit of chaos. And when we collude with chaos, we give up our human authority to love and we move away and there's a distortion of genuine humanness and that, that is sin. And we get bound up in it. It takes a a tight hold grip on us. And so I want you to think of some of the things in the world that are the antithesis of love that create chaos. Racism, it creates chaos and it is the antithesis of love. Countries, because of wealth, that matter more than others, that is the antithesis of love. Cruelty to animals or creation, we are just talking about this morning that when you take a great white shark, and you put it into captivity, it dies. I think Haley said, like, within 48 hours. Right? Cruelty to animals and creation is the antithesis of love. Hunger and war. That's the notion of what chaos is like. I want you to think of some things that have a tight grip on you that create chaos in you, that whisper the shame voice in you that you're not worthy of love and belonging because you did that or you do that or you think that. That's chaos in your own brain. Things that make you afraid or the judgments that you have of others or the critical voice that's in your head that criticizes you or turns into criticism towards others. Or pride, or that sense of entitlement that you have. Those are the antithesis of love, and they create chaos and havoc. And that's a distortion of what it means to be human, genuinely human. Because to be genuinely human means that you tell the story of love to a great white, or to your neighbor, or to yourself. And we need that grip globally, systemically, personally, released. We need that grip to be gone.
And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's drawing all of the sin into one place to handle it. That's what the story of the Gospels tell us. That's what this narrative is supposed to awaken our imagination to. You have these religious leaders that are like directing their chaos towards Jesus. These symbolic of this religious institution that's in chaos. The political leaders that do the same thing, direct their hostility towards Jesus. Right? It's this picture of this political reality. And then there's the deceiver or the Satan that gets a hold of Judas. So these, these dark forces that are part of all of it. And then there's his friends that just betray him. Like it's at every level in this story that the chaos is showing up. And it's drawn into one place in one time. As a picture that Jesus absorbs that on the cross. And we have to have a notion here that God is working with God's self to do that. Like Johnny talked about last week, there's this community, this family that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're all part of this work. That they work together to get us out of the grip. Why? Because God loves us. And it is intolerable to God that we would be held by anything other than love. It is intolerable to God that we would be held by anything other than love. If you have affection for anyone, you know that. You want the people that you have affection for to be held safely in love. And so in Romans chapter 8, as Paul describes this whole moment of Jesus on the cross, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through Christ, the law of the Spirit brings life. And sets you free from the law of sin and death. This thing that has a hold of you. Christ sets you free from that. And in that passage it says that sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus didn't face condemnation. Humans weren't facing condemnation. Sin was condemned in the person of Jesus. Why? So that we can be free. Free to be human again. Free to be genuinely human again. Because genuine humanness tells a true story. A true story about God, a true story about each other, and a true story about the world. And that's what God wants us to be about. We're loved. And that's the entire picture that we get out of the, if we look at the Bible as a play. You know, act one is God's loving presence in the garden, even when Adam and Eve blow it. Act two is God's loving presence with Israel, constantly, consistently, faithfully, 
Act three is God's loving presence in Jesus. Act four, the one that we're in right now, is God's presence by his spirit. And act five, where we're headed, is God's restored loving presence, restoring all things, which is what we point to at Easter when we have this feast together. That that's what we expect and anticipate is completely restored presence. And we're kind of living in this liminal space where we have been given the gift of freedom, but we're constantly tugged back away from love. We've been so habituated by chaos that sometimes we forget how to love or we don't know how to love or we don't remember that we're loved. And I think a good example of that is when people go to jail. They're habituated into a certain kind of space and when people get out of jail, oftentimes they don't even know what to do with their freedom because they've been habituated into being not free. And I think that's what the chaos has done to us. It habituates us into not being free, not being genuinely human. And so for people getting out of jail, they need helpers on the other side. And that's okay to need helpers. It's just wisdom. And we need helper too. Verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of the Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. The Spirit of Jesus is transforming us to be truly human again. Transforming us back to our genuine humanness. Last week, Johnny quoted Greg Boyd. It's why the work of the Son had to be accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit. We needed God revealed to us in Jesus, and now we need the truth of who God is, like revealed in us. In Jesus, love is revealed. And then in the Spirit, that love is pressed down deep into us. Right, Johnny said last week that the whole of God is working so that the whole of you may know that you are wholly loved. The whole of God is working so that you, that the whole of you may know that you are wholly loved. So, Missio, what's your job? Verse 16, that you would know and rely on the love that God has for you. That you would know and that you would rely on the love that God has for you. Oh, great job. Do you rely on the love that God has for you? Do you put the full weight of yourself down on that love? That's what it means to rely. Just like, here I am, dude, right in here, in love of God. Just set up shop there. 
Make your home there. Live there. It says that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. You have a place to call home. But that sometimes feels a bit hard. And it might even be hard to know what that means. We've been talking about it a lot. God is love. All right, Heather. Don't actually feel like I have very many words to wrap around that. Or you might. But what would it mean to kind of understand a bit of what it would look like to make your home in the place called love? To like get a chair and like sit there for a bit. Haley reminded me this week that when we were going through Psalms at one point, Sandy Timbo bought us all a Psalm book and it had instead of the word God there, it had the word love. So whenever we read the Psalms and God's, instead of God's saying God, it would be love. Now I was thinking about in the Bible a passage that describes love. You know, we're all, some of us may be familiar with it, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I decided to change it around so that maybe we could understand if God says that God is love, then here in the text it tells us what love is. These characteristics must be overlapping. If we interpret the Bible by the Bible, then here it is. God is love and here is a description of love. So it says love on the back of the screen where I'm going to read it, but I'm going to use the word God. Missy, oh God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Is this the way you think God is towards you? patient and kind, doesn't keep a record of your wrongs, isn't easily angered, hopes in you, trusts, faithful, perseveres. God isn't going to fail you. God's love will not fail you. You don't have to believe it fully. It's hard to get a hold of. You might feel a bit skeptical Let me read it again. If I could say all of your names, I would say them right now. So that I could drive it home deeply to you. Missio, God is patient. God is kind. 
God does not envy, God does not boast, God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. What if we had that swimming around inside of our minds? What if those were the kinds of image that we had in our gallery about who God is? I don't think we'd be afraid of punishment. Which is what First John goes on to say. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. That's not the way that God wants us to see or perceive him. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We don't have to be afraid that God wants to punish us. We don't have to be afraid that God doesn't like us. We don't have to be afraid that God will abandon us. We do have fear responses. And I want you to know that they're valid. Right? We live in a world and there is so much that is fragile. Relationships that are fragile. And Jesus understands that. And we're going to talk about that next week. So I don't think again that it's about like willing ourselves not to be afraid. We have a lot of reasons to be afraid that we'd be punished or that we'd be abandoned or that someone would blow their temper on us. But we don't have to be afraid, even though maybe sometimes we are, that God wants to do those things. That's not the story that God is telling us. Imagine if you believed that you couldn't lose love. How much freedom is that? If you believed you couldn't lose love. And I think that we're taught to be afraid of freedom. But I don't think God is concerned about that because humans have a whole lot of freedom, right? It's in the freedom that we're called home to love. It's in the freedom of when we fail and we flounder that we begin to understand grace and mercy and forgiveness. We begin, to leave, we begin to believe that God's love is not breakable. You cannot break God of love. You just cannot do it. We collectively as humans, we cannot break God of love. And the point is, is that we would begin to rely and live and grasp the love of God, that it's abounding and abundant and full, just like the description in Corinthians, and that we'd like live there and get hold of that so that we might love that way too. Genuine humanness. 
And we love that way too. That's us living into our true humanity. That's the target. It's where we're headed. What have you believed about yourself that isn't rooted in love? Think about that for a minute. What have you believed about yourself that isn't rooted in love? That you're an idiot? That you're stupid? That you're worthless? That you're not beautiful enough? That you're not good enough? That you're a failure? That you need to do better? That that thing you did or that action that happened to you makes you unlovable? What have you believed about yourself that isn't rooted in love? What have you believed about God that isn't rooted in love? That he doesn't like you? That God doesn't want to be around you? That God is angry? That God is hateful? God is uncaring. What if you acted in opposition to everything that tells you that you are not loved? Oppositional action. What if you acted in opposition to everything that tells you that you are not loved? Even if it is hard to believe, acting as if we do believe that we're loved, relying on something outside of ourselves, outside of our actions. I think that transforms our lives when we act in opposition to the things that communicate to us or to those around us that we aren't loved. So as you take communion today, I want you to take it and Be mindful that this is a symbol of love, not of punishment. It's a symbol of love. And I want you to think about the boots that you came in here with. Maybe they're beliefs or actions or ideas that you might need to leave. So you can put some other shoes on. The end of David White's poem is this. I want you to think about it as it relates to the things that brought you in here today that aren't wrapped in love. The shoes you've got on that tell you a story that is in opposition to love. Abandon those shoes that brought you in here. Right at the water's edge. Not because you had given up. Not because you had given up. But because now, you would find a different way to tread. Abandon those shoes that brought you in here today. Right 
at the water's edge. Not because you had given up. Not because you had given up. But because now you find a different way to tread. Let's pray. Jesus, um, maybe it's a little cheesy, but the shoes you give us to wear are the shoes that are full of love. And so would you help us to, to maybe let go of some of the things that we've come to know about you that don't fit who you say you are? And sometimes that's uncomfortable because what we believe is rooted in family or tradition or stories that we've heard or maybe things that we still don't know that how to let go of. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would, through your spirit, help us like you promised to. We're so habituated into chaos that we need spirit for you to, to walk us into what is spacious and kind and patient. And so I pray today that you would help us to live into love. That we'd believe that you are loving, that we believe that we ourselves are loved, and that because of that we would offer that love into the world. So Jesus, help us to leave here different. That the voices of criticism or self-doubt or shame or fear, that they would be quieted today and the voice of love, love would be loud. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.